Welcome to Chapter 221 of WCBS Author Talks. I'm your host, Lisa T. And coming up, author and bio-researcher Alice Henderson tells us how her environmental thrillers have led people to take action against climate change. Then we chat with accidental crime writer Jacqueline Bublitz, whose new novel pushes back against the genre's usual tropes. It's estimated there are more than 41,000 animal species under threat of extinction worldwide. And I guarantee you, if author slash bioresearcher Alice Henderson could write an environmental thriller about the plight of each one, she probably would. Her latest novel focuses on the elusive North American mountain caribou, of which there are only about 1,900 left in the wild. She shares what led her to write about the all-but-vanished animal in A Ghost of Caribou. Well, I had helped out with a couple barren ground caribou projects where there are these collar cameras attached to caribou and you get to see them throughout their day caring for their calves and interacting with the herd. And the project was just so neat. So right away, I was already in love with caribou. And then there's mountain caribou, which are different from barren ground caribou. They fulfill a different niche, different ecological niche. And unfortunately, here in the lower 48, we lost our last mountain caribou in 2019. And it could have been avoided, I think. So I really wanted to address the plight of these animals. And of course, you do it in the way that you do, which is that there may be a dead human or two in the story. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about uh, A Ghost of Caribou. Well, it is the third book in the Alex Carter Wildlife Biologist series, although it can be read as a standalone. And in it, she is hired by the Land Trust for Wildlife Conservation, and they have a preserve up in Washington State in the inland rainforest near the Idaho-Canada border. And one of their remote cameras picked up a blurry image of what might be a mountain caribou. And because they were extirpated in 2019, if one has come down from Canada, it's huge. So she's tasked with finding out if it really is there. But while there, She encounters an unsolved murder and clues in a missing persons case in a town in turmoil as loggers and activists clash over a swath of old growth that's due to be clear cut. I think if people talked about climate change in the way you do in your books and put them in these kinds of stories, maybe people might pay more attention just because you do it in such a way that's that's not preachy. It's entertaining. But you're really trying to get across this message that, hey, people, you got to listen up. We got to do something about this. Thank you for saying that. You know, that's one of my main goals with this series is I really wanted to shed light. But in an approachable way, I think so much of the climate crisis is addressed in this doom and gloom. Oh, my gosh, we have to sacrifice all this stuff to make it better. But it's really a great opportunity to build a better life, a healthier life cleaner air, cleaner water. And I I was hoping that by addressing it in a suspense novel, you know, that a lot of people might pick it up for the action and fight scenes and then learn about these issues on the side. So your main character, Alex, at one point in this book ruminates that um, in order to do something about climate change, it has to be more than just those small steps that that everybody knows they should take. And she even talks about um, getting something past like an entire endangered Ecosystem Act. And I guess what I want to know is why why do people find it so difficult to think about this issue in terms of like big picture? Because every time everybody wants to tackle a problem, they say, oh, you got to think of big picture. But with climate change, it seems really hard to grasp in that spec. 
I think it's difficult for people to think about it because it, it feels very overwhelming. It's affecting the entire planet. And now we don't have the luxury anymore. Climate change used to sort of feel like this faraway thing happening in the Arctic and it wasn't really touching our lives. But now we don't have that luxury anymore with these devastating wildfires we've been having and drought and these mega storms and sea level rise. So it is now a part of so many people's daily lives, but it can seem like so insurmountable. How do I tackle this and what steps can I take? So I think that it is definitely important for everyone to do those little steps, eat less meat, you know, engage in community science, do projects that in your community. But it's also important to engage on a much larger level, like write to not just your representatives, but the corporations that are donating to their campaigns and get a real grassroots effort going with people in your community. Your state government is a great place to start. I know I asked you this the last time I sat down with you, and I'm going to ask you again, do you think it's too late? It's obviously too late to stave off some of the effects that we're seeing right now. Um, I don't think it's too late to stave off the worst that could happen, but we really need to act now. And unfortunately, um, here in the U.S., you know, the government's been very slow to enact meaningful climate change legislation. And I think now more than ever, it's important to let our voices be heard that this is affecting all of us now and in a very negative way. It's not something we can put off anymore. It's something absolutely needs to be done, and it needs to be done now. This is your third book in your series. Do you think you've inspired readers to do something, to do more, or even to take one step? I have thankfully heard from readers that they were inspired to either get involved with community science projects in their in their communities, and also um, they've gotten involved with more nonprofits, like donating to nonprofits that help with research for these species and conservation projects with the species. So it has been very buoying to know that people are taking notice and they are inspired to take action. So that as a huge part of why I wrote this book, it just means so much to me. The other thing your book inspires me to do is want to get outside in the woods and just experience nature. Because <laughs> I love Alex for just being able to move to someplace different every time, kind of be alone in her on her on her own in the woods, just surrounded by nature. But at the same time, that really terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted her to, to be freelance for that very reason, you know, so that she could travel to these different places and I could address different species. And um, and then I, I myself as a wildlife researcher spend a lot of time out um, in the wilds like that, uh, studying wildlife. So it was just a fun character to bring to life. Is she going to come back in another book or are you done with your series? She is. I'm almost finished with the fourth book in the series, which is called A Prowl of Jaguars and is set in New Mexico. So this time it'll be a, a hot setting <laughs> instead of the cold of the Canadian Arctic or mountains of Montana. I'm sure that's going to bring a whole host of things that she's going to have to deal with that she hasn't dealt with before. Oh, yes. It's all fresh issues. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe a snake or scorpion or two. I think so. <laughs> yeah, I figured that might be the case. Well, we've been talking with Alice Henderson. The new book is A Ghost of Caribou. Thank you so much for spending some time today and talking to us about it. My absolute pleasure, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. There is no shortage of thriller or murder mystery books featuring female victims out there. 
And I am 100% not knocking these stories. I enjoy reading them as much as anyone else. But after picking up the new novel from Jacqueline Bublitz, it's hard not to view them in a whole new light. In Before You Knew My Name, the focus isn't on the suspect or even the investigation. It's the victim, who she was, who she could have been, and the impression she leaves on people even after her death. Jacqueline tells me why she wanted to write a story that didn't look the same. You know, I mean, I, I've explained it that I consider myself an, an accidental crime writer uh, in that I didn't set out to write a crime novel. wasn't even sure that I was, I was setting out to write a novel full stop when I started with this idea. I had um, you know, this, this question in my head back in 2014, what would it be like? What would the connection be like between a person um, who finds the body of a murder victim and, and the victim themselves? Um, if indeed it was, you know, possible to to explore that connection, and that had been because there'd been a murder on my street in Melbourne where I was living at the time, really busy um, main thoroughfare into the city, popular park. A young woman was murdered in the early hours, and a jogger had found her body just a couple of hours later. And you know, that Sunday morning when her, when Renee Lau's body was found, I was sleeping in uh, but normally I would have gone for a run roughly you know at the same time um, and I couldn't stop thinking about you know what if it had been me um, jogging um, around um, what we call the tan and I'd found Renee's body so really the um, you know the genesis or the origin of this um, of the story was from wondering you know placing myself um, in in both positions actually thinking about the young murder victim um, doing something that I had done many, many times myself, wandered up and down that street to get to get home from either work or, you know, out with friends um, in the city. Uh, and then this you know, equally innocent uh, jogger uh, whose life I can only assume must have been completely rearranged on that morning. And then, you know, in writing the story, uh, there were obviously some tropes or crime tropes that I ended up um consciously pushing against but certainly not at the beginning I just I, I just wanted to tell this story to myself first uh and then I realized I might have something to say to other people as well so uh so people know your your story is set in New York and mm -hmm. we have two women who both come to the city from from different places and different points in their lives but but you have them arrive on the same day and I find it fascinating that the victim, and we're not giving anything away because you know <laughs> that she's gone from, from the get-go, that we don't mm -hmm. know her name for quite some time. Yeah, I think, I mean, it was tricky to have um, Alice, is her name, it was tricky to have Alice be a Jane Doe um, in that, um, you know, you do, today in today's world of dna and social media and you know our, our digital footprint uh, it's not that easy to uh, disappear so i had to, there was a there was a lot of work that needed to be done but once i i dug into uh, missing persons and and spent time on for example the namus i think i'm saying that right the namus site which is um america's um like red online registry of, of missing um, persons i realized there were some um, it was possible to disappear or it was possible rather to not be looked for, especially if you met certain um, criteria around aspects of your identity. If you were poor, if you were, uh, for want of a better word, uh, if you were not um, somebody that uh, people um, were automatically going to be looking for. Um, so yeah, that was a really interesting, challenging part of the um, 
of the narrative of the story, because of course I was the murder that I'd um, been, it's awful to say inspired by, but the murder that I'd been inspired by um, was very different and that we knew straight away who this young woman was. Um, yeah, I really wanted to explore the loss of identity and um, that comes with being a victim, even when you are named. Um, and this was a, um, you know, a technique that was an explicit way of doing that. Your victim is a pretty young white girl from the Midwest. And mm-hmm. you do point out in your book the sad reality that is missing white girl syndrome. And, you know, knowing that, why did you still choose to make Alice a white girl? That's a really good question. Um, first, I I didn't I didn't want to write to something that I didn't feel I had the qualifications, both personally and certainly professionally as well, to write from. I wanted to to raise the point from an outsider's perspective. You know, I'm a, a middle class white woman, straight white woman from Australia and New Zealand, depending on the day. Um, I would have bitten off more than I could chew. I think if I tried to make it the central sort of tenant or focus of the story. At the same time, you know, I was starting to really pay attention as Ruby, uh, the character who finds um, Alice's body does. I was really starting to pay attention through my research um, around whose story gets told and things that I had wondered at in the past. I mean, living uh, down under, we would, um, certain American stories in particular would, would make the headlines um, in our countries um, around, usually around the murder of a, a a young um, white woman, and I'm not saying that those stories shouldn't have, you know, had the attention they had. But I did used to wonder sometimes why is this, why is this, why this particular girl, why this particular story is, you know, capturing international attention. Um, and there was also a part where I wanted to, and and I I don't know how successful I've I've been in this. I wanted to play with this idea that even when you're the so-called I'm using air quotes here, perfect victim, the perfect dead girl. Uh, they can stay, people observing with their bias and, and so forth, they can still find something wrong with you. They can still find a way to blame you. So what chance do you have when you bring in all, all of these other aspects of, of your identity? Um, if even, you know, the pretty sort of Alice in Wonderland looking white girl um, could have had, and she's aware of this, the, the character of Alice could have had the media, for example, turn against her if they'd known certain aspects of her past. I think one of the reasons your story resonated so much with me is is that you do address that, uh, you know, those imperfections and that maybe she did something wrong or she was someplace she shouldn't have been or she talked to someone she shouldn't have talked to and that women have this crazy amount of attention on them when it comes to something like this and that we're constantly fighting against it because we're fighting against you know, we want to be seen as nice and okay, but at the same time, every woman, I'm sure you have stories, I have stories, friends have stories of that little voice, that little gut instinct that tells you, mm-hmm. hey, this situation's not normal. We should pay attention to it. And for whatever reason, we may ignore it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think a lot of the time we we don't ignore it. And sometimes afterwards, we're, which is good, um, you know, and we might be uncomfortable afterwards with, with certain, you know, behaviors. Maybe we've been a little bit sharp with a stranger at a bar or, you know, we've, we've crossed the street and felt bad that we've made somebody else feel uncomfortable um, when they were walking too close behind us. Um, so I'm, I'm, I think that we have a an instinct uh, or it's very you know it's learned um learned behavior that that feels like instinct uh to to what i call navigate 
our safety. Uh, and I, I mean, I lived, I moved to Melbourne, a, a relatively big city, roughly now 5 million people when I was 18 years old. And I used to work a evening shift in um, in the central business district. And I would have to walk home at 11, 1130 at night. There wasn't any other way for me to get home at 18 years old in, in the 90s. I, I couldn't afford um you know, it wasn't Uber then. I didn't, couldn't, you know, <laughs> afford to have someone. I didn't have someone to come and pick me up, let alone whether I could afford it to have a car. Um, and so I knew what it was like to know that I shouldn't be somewhere. I shouldn't be walking through an industrial area, um, one of the uh, at the time seedier parts of the of the city as well. I knew I shouldn't be doing that, but I also had no choice but to. And at a certain point, you know, my stubbornness kicked in, and I used to do things like imagine I had. I actually thought about this for a long while. I would imagine I had a black panther that would like. And it would walk around to be like, (laughs) like, this is what I would do at 18 years old to to make myself not only feel safe, but to think, you know, if anybody's watching me, they're going to see that I'm not afraid because I have an imaginary (laughs) big cat, like stalking me home or something. These are, this is part of, uh, this was part of my life. And I didn't live in fear. I wasn't not doing the things I wanted to, but I was always aware that, if something had happened to me on one of those walks home, there would have been that through line of conversation around, well, what was she doing? Like, why was she walking, you know, on Spencer Street, Melbourne um, at that time of night? I'm amazed that this book is set in New York and that you don't live in New York because (laughs) I, being a native, if I had not known any better, I would have thought that this was someone who lived in Manhattan somewhere because you get the setting so right and and the feeling and the people so right. This makes me so happy to hear. I was I was genuinely nervous about um, New Yorkers in particular reading this. You know, it was out on this side of the world, my side of the world, um, a little while ago now, and. I was um, fairly, excuse me, fairly secure sort of in the notion that there would be enough people like me who had this sort of love affair with, with New York City from a distance, you know, born of movies, songs, you know, TV shows when we were growing up and just the sheer the sheer distance as well um, between us. So I was, I was fairly certain I could, I could capture the city in a way that would resonate um, with people who were not from uh, New York. So to hear that it um, that I got something right from a, a New Yorker it makes me very, very happy because I couldn't, I couldn't get back um, to your wonderful city uh, once the book deals started happening. You know, once it became obvious that this book was going to to be published and read, um, we were also then in the thick of a, you know, a pandemic, and I couldn't get back to New York to check. You know, if if, if Alice was standing on this you know, side of the street, would she see the Chrysler building? There was a lot of, a lot of me doing like Google, um, Google street like maps going, okay, if I am standing at Bryant Park, like, can I see the Chrysler building from what corner? <laughs> like a lot of details that because I had to rely on the memories of those five or six months back in 2015, um, where I had wandered the streets, taking these two characters with me. I think the only thing that will come across to a, a New Yorker as fiction is Noah's apartment, only because yeah. that's <laughs> so Noah is a character who befriends Alice when she first <laughs> comes and he lives in this incredible brownstone. Mm. And I think for most of us, that's that's just a dream that we wish we could yeah. peek into. <laughs> yeah, Noah is a character. Um, 
I it's just he's interesting. He represents a lot of different things, good, bad, or otherwise. And I I wanted to give him because I wanted to give Alice uh, for a short period of time this uh, a type of um, reality that was so far from her own kind of experience of the world. And and it was actually just really fun to um, imagine. I had lived on the Upper West Side for a bit, and I I did meet a couple of people who had. Um, like these extraordinarily beautiful um, apartments. Um, but most of the time it was, you know, I was, you know, my little, it was my little studio and I would see people walking the streets with these big dogs and I would think, how are you, where are you putting them? Where are you putting these dogs in New York City? One of the sentiments I like that you bring up in the book is that it's not only the dead that don't get to live out the the rest of their lives, that the people who are left behind end up not living the life they thought that they were going to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, and I'm, I'm, I talk openly about the fact that my dad died while I was, um, my dad was very, very close to, uh, died while I was putting the, what I thought was the finishing touches on, on um, the, on what became Before You Knew My Name. And there's a there's a lot in uh, that made its way into the book after his death around um, not not just my grief at, at losing him in the way that we did he died of cancer uh, but what he wasn't going to get to see um, so I I have you know an act of grief around the fact that my dad never got to walk into a bookstore uh and see you know my book on the on the shelves uh or you know wasn't waiting for me at the airport when I got home from New York last week you know find out you know did I conquer the big apple that's how he would have seen it because he was very very um proud of me and he also believed that you know that I could um I could do anything, but it took me a while to, 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 to prove him right. So there's there's a lot of my own um, experience in that, and then it was just thinking about the the you know the ripple effects of of, of what happens when we lose these young women because so often we're so focused on in in you know in, when it comes to specifically um, this kind of gendered crime, um, we so often focus on how the person died, what they were doing just before, uh, and there's not a lot of space to think about well, what was she going to do? Who was she going to be? And, and you know, I think there's a whole other story I could write at some point about the um, family, um, the family left behind. Um, I know there's there's some, some lovely literature about that out there, but it's something that really resonates with me. Who do you become when something happens to somebody else? And there's a line in the book, and it's a through line into my uh, next book, which is it's never just one life that they destroy. Uh, and that's you know something that I really um, think about a lot. You do have some serious discussions about death and what happens after death. And you have a, a group of characters who they get together once a week and have lots of drinks mm-hmm. as, as they ponder. So what do you think awaits us mm. after death? It's a very good question. And of course, I think about it a lot and not just in the not just in the context of having written um, before you knew my name. I have decided that for now I don't know and I'm grateful that I don't know. I have um, on any given day an assurance um, that the dead are not lost to us. That's a Fox Mulder quote that I love to um, borrow uh, from the X-Files. You know, so the dead are never truly lost to us. I 
I know that um, or I believe it because I want to believe that. Um, however, what that means, um, I have absolutely no idea and I don't want to know because what if I didn't like what if I didn't like the answer? Like what what would that what would that mean? I think it's it's one of the few aspects of my life and I'm a very curious person and I'm obsessed with research. It's one of the few areas of my life where I am happy at this stage at least not to know. All right, to end on a little bit of a lighter note, did you conquer New York when you were back here? <laughs> um, did I conquer New York? I loved being back. I had a, a little moment, and this is what I've come to realize, um, especially these days, you know, life is, is not quite as, um, if it ever was, it's not quite as predictable as we perhaps thought it once was. I was walking up Fifth Avenue, um, one street over from heading up to, to um Simon and Schuster, my publishing house, I was listening to, and this is going to really out me now for who I really am. I was listening to Let Me Be Your Star from Smash, the musical that was set <laughs> in New York a while ago. I was listening to it. I had a fancy dress on my hair on makeup uh, for my um, launch day, and I cried my eyes out. I was just like, <laughs> this is everything and more um that i imagined um and being in new york life. nobody blinked an eye at you no, bawling your eyes out just, on uh, avenue <laughs> no and that is absolutely it nobody i think somebody might have said something nice about my dress at one point but yeah nobody cared nobody just just don't get in anybody's way and you know and then within a minute i was because it, i was hot and sweaty um because it was like pretty much like tropical when I was even though it was fall right it was like tropical and I was like sticky and sweaty and I'm like oh this city's so dirty and I'm like gross and like what's going on here so yeah it was a true New York moment I was like crying with happiness listening to a, a song from a you know a, well would be Broadway musical uh and then I'm like yeah I'm grimy and I need to go home and have a shower before I actually show up that time and it's just <laughs> well hopefully the next time you come back to New York you it won't be as uh, grimy and sweaty and <laughs> oh, I don't <laughs> mind else. it. It adds it adds. I do want to come back when it's um the thick of winter, which we all probably think I'm crazy about, but I've I'm, I've yet to go skating in central in Central Park or you know, or some of the other places. And when I was there the rinks were open, but it was like what, twenty two uh, twenty two degrees, like seventy four degrees. So I'm like, Yeah, it's not it's not giving me home alone too much. A little secret. Most native New Yorkers haven't done that yet either. No, I know. I can imagine. <laughs> and I imagine it gets really but you know, we see movies like um Home Alone Two or something, and we're like, You have to go to New York City at Christmas time. So I will do that one day and I'll cry again. Well, we hope to see you here in the meantime. Keep writing and keep writing Thank fantastic you. books like Before You Knew My Name. We've been talking with Jacqueline Bublitz. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we usher in the holiday season with a couple of books full of the Yuletide spirit. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. <laughs>